We're going to be looking at the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. There are three stories in this chapter. Last week, we looked at Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat, which is the end of chapter 4. And that story, along with the three we read in chapter 5, those four stories together, take up what we talked about, how God's kingdom is demonstrated by the way the king is. And this is the gospel of Mark we see all the way through. Who is the king? What does his kingdom look like? He demonstrates his kingdom when he acts like the king. And so we talked about how he rules over nature and how he spoke a word, peace be still, and we we discussed that. It's on the website. You can listen to it. But these next three stories tag together because what Mark is trying to get us to see is that there are all forms of death and Jesus rules over all of them. Last time it was that fear of nature and that sense of physical death that they were under and how Jesus ruled over that. This morning, if you've got your Bible, I'm going to, rather than read the entire chapter, I'm going to tell you the stories, and then we're going to look at a few verses. The first story that we have is Mark uh, 5, 1 through 20. And what's happened is Jesus has departed to the other side of the sea because the crowds have been so great, all the diseased people trying to touch him, everybody trying to get to this guy who's now had all this notoriety, and he departs and he leaves to the other side. He sails away because he can't walk away. And he gets down to the far side of the Sea of Galilee and he departs away into a city uh, that is called Gerasa. Um, that is a city that's part of what's known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis means ten cities, and it was one of ten cities on the eastern side of Rome's empire. And it's in the countries that we know of Israel, Jordan, Syria, and it's a group. And they specifically built Roman culture in these ten cities. And this is one of those cities. And so in there, it was mostly non-Jews. There were Jews who lived there, but this was not a place within the, ta- within the uh, boundary of Israel, nor was it a place of Jewish culture. And so we have to read that because here's what happens. Starting at verse 5, they came to the other side of sea, the sea to the country of the Gerizines. That's Gerasa. That's that city and the, and the area surrounding it. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, Mark uses the word immediately in sort of a broad sense. Garas is actually a number of miles from the sea, but Mark wants us to see that this action is happening. He does this to keep the readers on the edge of their seat, as it were. And so here's this guy out in the tombs. He has an unclean spirit. He's filled with, with a demon. And he lives among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountain, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay? So this guy is in a bad way. And... Here Jesus goes from a Jewish context on the Sea of Galilee, and he wanders directed into a non-Jewish culture, and he reaches out and takes the initiative to reach out to this man. We don't know if he was Jewish or non-Jewish, but he's certainly in a Roman uh, Hellenistic culture, Greek and Roman culture. And so Jesus walks up to him in verse 6. He says, and when he saw Jesus... 
From afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. So he falls down. Note that. We're going to look at that again. He falls down, cries out with a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So this person who wouldn't have any idea who Jesus was, but the demons did, right? They cry out, name him. Note that. They name him Jesus, son of the most high God. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus said, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion would have been like a Roman cohort, a huge group of soldiers. For we are many. So it wasn't just one name. He didn't really give his name. He said, We're many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. This demon knew that Jesus had authority over him. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they're afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might come be with him. But he did not permit him. In other words, the man couldn't come be with Jesus. He said, no, you go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So this wild man, this just guy, I don't know what, how we would characterize him today mental illness or something, I don't know. But Jesus in the Spirit knew that this man had demonic issues. One of the things I just want us to look at is that the, uh, the idea of us, you know, we are, we are spirit, we are physical bodies, and we are psychological, that, that interior, that soul part of us. And it takes discernment when people have issues Sometimes everyone will say, well, every problem someone has is, is spiritual, it's demonic. And sometimes people will say, well, it's all medical, it's all just can be controlled with medicine. Some will say, well, it's all psychological and everything can be done with. It takes discernment. Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to discern in this man that he had demonic issues. And we are wise if we look and ask God for discernment, because people in our world, we, we, gosh, us, me, Sometimes I don't even know my own heart. I have, I have to say, Lord, what, what's going on with me? Why am I doing this? Maybe it's just the pizza I ate. Maybe it's just lack of sleep. But Lord, maybe I'm being tormented by the enemy. Or Lord, maybe I haven't dealt with issues. Maybe I got daddy issues. I don't know. Sometimes I think we do not well to simply label everything one thing without asking God, would you give us, Lord, would you help me understand myself? Or would you help me understand my child? or this person that I'm dealing with, what's going on in their life? Let's at least start there. Let's not be so um, presumptuous 
as to think we have all the answers and we know exactly without asking God what's going on in someone's life. Jesus operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think that's, that's one. Jesus taking the initiative and reaching out in the Decapolis tells me that there's no one. I think I would have gone the other way, the long way around the cemetery. I don't want to deal with people who are cutting themselves and who are screaming. I, I, I just, I don't. It's uncomfortable. Jesus, it seemed, walked right up to him and took authority over the situation. No one's beyond and outside of the reach of Jesus. Third thing I want us to look at is that Jesus did not kill Wilbur, Piglet, Porky, Miss Piggy, and Babe. Okay? People read this, and I've heard many people write about how offended the AS, you know, ASPCA would ever be so offended that all these pigs, I mean, the poor piggies, right? We've, we've somehow, you know, in our culture, pigs are cute little things that we just, you know, want to hug, and, you know, we've seen Babe a thousand times and whatever. We have to understand context. If we're going to read the Bible with any clarity, we have to read it and understand it to the best of our ability as they understood it. To a first century Jew, a swine was a picture of contempt that heathen had for Jewish people. Remember, pigs are unclean animals. They weren't allowed to eat them by the Jewish dietary laws. You weren't allowed to touch them. That was simply one of the ways of separation. But also, it was a way from the time of the Maccabees, 150 years earlier until now, it was a time that people who wanted to oppress Jews used pigs to torment them. They were forced to eat like tied up, bound, and humiliated, and forced to eat pork as a way to say we're dominant over you and we are defiling your religion. So for them, it was poetic justice to have demons filled with pigs, right? Or pigs filled with demons. It'd be kind of interesting to see a demon filled with a pig. Wouldn't it? All right, uh, edit, Paul, edit that part of the tape. Um, to have... The pigs filled with demons, they would have seen that as very just. And so to have them hurling, read it as a first century Jew, not as a 21st century American, right? So finally, I just want us to see how had the community of this man, this demoniac who was bound in darkness, the kingdom of God nowhere near him, how was he treated by the community? What does it say they did to him? What was their treatment plan? He was chained. He was chained, it says. He was chained and bound. The way they dealt with him was to just try to not only put him in the tombs, a place of darkness, but also to just strap him down so that he wouldn't hurt anyone else. Jesus' plan for him was to approach him, to touch him, to speak with him, and to free him, not simply to bind him. When the kingdom of God comes... We become free. We become free on so many levels. For him, it was the physical level. What, finally, just interestingly enough, what was the reaction of the community to a man who had been probably one of those, you know, the crazy guy in the tombs guy? I'm sure the people in that town, that's probably the way they talked about him and saw him. Might not have been the only one. What was their reaction to the man sitting in their midst free? They were scared and they were upset. Did they say, Jesus, come, stay with us. You could do so much good. I mean, if you could free that guy, think of all the issues in our town. What was their response? Go away, right? They pled with him. The townspeople 
pled with him to go away. The pigs were dead. Whatever, I mean, I'm sure there was an economic cost to that for the pig owner. But beyond that, he had upset the way things were. It is amazing to me the way we as humans can get very comfortable with the way things are as awful as they are. Guys, in our culture, we've become very comfortable with some things the way they are, and they're awful. They're not the kingdom of God. And as the church, part of our responsibility is to continue to be a thorn and to say, this is not right. Jesus walked into a dark situation with a man bound and said, this is not right. Be free. It upset the the authorities that were. Don't be afraid to be salt and light in our world. It is our calling. Will everyone love you for it? No. Got news for you. They aren't going to love you. But it's important because there are bound people who will never be free if you can't speak the word of Christ to them. Jesus, now we're told, moves, gospel tells us that he moves to a story within a story. There are two of the most powerful stories in this gospel, and some say the pinnacle of this gospel covering a lot of territory, and I'm doing it rather rapidly, I know, but I want us to read these three stories the way Mark wrote them, which was as a piece. Mark didn't write these with chapters, but he clearly wrote these three stories plus the walking on the water as a piece. So I'm going to simply describe to you the second half of the chapter of Mark, and if you've read the Bible and familiar with it, you probably have heard this before. If you're not, the stories aren't hard to, to understand. Jairus was the leader of a synagogue. He comes to Jesus and he says, my daughter is dying. She's got just a few days. She's, she's on her deathbed. Would you please come and heal? Okay. Shows a certain amount of desperation and that, that in that time and day, a leader, a religious leader would come openly. He was known as a healer. So to come, it was, you know, why not? What have I got to lose, right? So Jesus says, let's go. So uh, if, you, if you have your Bible and want to follow along, while I won't be reading it through, I'm starting at verse 21 here. So, uh, and then the, it's a sort of a parade. It says the whole crowd follows him. You can imagine, wherever Jesus went, man, it was big time. So they began to follow him along to this guy's house to see what was going to happen. That'd be pretty cool to see him heal another person. So we, we've got that going on, and there's lots and lots of people thronging around him. Remember, one of the things of Mark is that people were touching him all the time. We've talked about that around the Sea of Galilee, how every diseased person is trying to touch him. And we read later on in Mark uh, 6.56, it says people were touching his robe and his garments, and it said people were touching him all the time. I don't, think, I don't know if we picture that when we picture Jesus coming, but everywhere he went, people were trying to touch him or what he was wearing. So as he's walking along, it says a woman who had a discharge of blood, maybe uterine bleeding or some other illness for 12 years, had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all of her resources, was no better off but growing worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. It's one of those vivid pictures that if you've heard Bible things, to have the woman just crowds of people and somehow she slips in, reaches her hand in, and the hem of his robe, some part of his garment, she touches him. And immediately after 12 years of no help, the bleeding stops. Now we have to, again, understand from a first century Jewish context, to have bleeding like that made you ritually unpure. 
It was Leviticus 15 describes you just can't be out in public for that. I'm not going to go into why that is. I don't know that I know all the reasons why. I'm just saying that's the law they were operating under. So for her to be out, for her to touch something made it unclean, she was outcast in terms of her inability to function within a community. So she was both isolated and ill. And here she is, for some reason, she's desperate enough to get herself out. I'm sure there must have been a level of shame and embarrassment to have that kind of illness. And so to get herself positioned as Jesus is walking by, to reach out and just to swipe by and and catch him. And she knows something has happened in her body. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever been in one of those situations where you'd rather not have something, something public? Did you have another announcement to make, Barbara? <laughs> it's my mother-in-law, so I can tease her. Or I do. I don't know if I can or not. But, um, so, maybe her technical assistant here can help her. So, Jesus comes by, and she says, and he says, oh, something's happened. Have you ever been like, so this, this has literally happened to me where I'm in a shopping center or I'm in a, a, like a Target or a, a Walmart or something, and you're buying something that's a little like you don't want really anybody to know you're buying it. Not that it's like a wrong thing, but sort of a personal thing and embarrassing. And it's the, the time when the guy says, you know, Frank, can you give me the price check on the like toe fungus cream? You know, <laughs> yeah, the really strong stuff, you know, this guy, you know, and you know, yeah, okay, four ninety five, And you know, you're just like, you know, you're buying something, you just want to, you just want to be quiet about it, right? You're not, it's not bad, you just don't want people to know. If, you know, if I'm thinking, if, if this woman, there has to be a measure of, yes, relief, she's healed, but, but also she just isn't, this isn't a matter. We're private about some things. I don't I know I am. I don't really want to, you know, publicize that. I think if I were Jesus, I might have just, people are touching him all the time. People are getting healed, all that. This is the only person he calls out. And I think I would have just sort of turned, you know, caught her eye, sort of the Hollywood way, and nodded like, I know what happened, you know. <laughs> and she looks and goes, and you know, you sort of part ways, and he goes on. Would have saved her, saved her maybe some, you know. He stops, crowds of people touching, things throngs around, and he says, who touched me? Price check, right? Everybody look here. Everybody stop. Of course, what is the crowd doing now? This lady knows. She, she's, she's up, right? Now, think of it from her perspective, would you please, with me? Why would Jesus call her out? Maybe, maybe um, he, she has ritually made him unclean. Again, this is a Jewish rabbi. Maybe it's just, he, she knows she did something that was kind of just in the dark, sort of. But she knew something happened. What does she do? She comes and she falls down at Jesus' feet. Remember what the demoniac did. Falls at Jesus' feet. Makes a request. She falls at Jesus' feet. Let's see what she says. Pick up with me, please. Uh, Because remember, the crowds, the, the disciples are saying, look, you can't tell who touched me. And he says, no, no, no. I know with faith someone touched me. So he looks around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole story. This is no private thing here, guys. This is in public. This is people standing around watching, and they're, she, they're hearing the story. 
Look at Jesus' words to hear. We, we sometimes, and it is important to talk about how she touched him with faith, and that's more of when I've heard this, but I want you to hear this verse for somebody here. He says to her, I think this is the key verse, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She was already healed of her disease before he spoke those words, wasn't she? Why would he pull her out when she'd already been healed? It wasn't that proclamation where she was healed. It was her faith touch of Jesus. Because I think Jesus wants more than just to heal us and change our lives. He wants to know us. And he wants to have what he really desires is a daughter-son relationship with you. More than to heal you. We desire to be healed, and it's a good thing. It is good to want to be healed, but it's even better to know Jesus. And he looks at her, and for 12 years of kind of that shame, he says, daughter. It's a very personal word. It's a very family word in the Greek as well as to us. Daughter, your faith has made you well. The word there he uses, this Go in peace, shalom, and the word for well, sozo. They're much more. It's the word to be saved. It's the same word. It says your life has changed, and now we have an eye-to-eye relationship. We've spoken together. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know him in a way where you can speak to him, and I know you can't see him, and I know it's, it's a little different than talking to a person, but it is no less real, and it is the fount of our life. For her, it's who touched me and she goes away and she's healed and she lives the rest of her life, but without that interaction with Jesus. And whatever cost to her pride that might have been, I think that's the eternal transformative experience. There's something, I don't know if it was embarrassing for her or not. Probably once she started talking to Jesus, she probably didn't even notice the crowd, my guess. I'm you know, speculating here. I, used to, I have a friend named Mike Atkins who's a pastor. And in the days where they'd say every head bowed and every eye closed when they do altar calls at churches, you've heard that and you've seen that, to save people's you know, pride and whatever. So don't look around, just raise your hand. I'm the only one that sees. Mike would stand up and he'd say, with every eye open, with every curious head looking around, you who want to profess your faith and be changed by Jesus and receive his blessing more than you want to appear in control of your own life, you stand up and let everyone look at you. Who wants Jesus? And I always, you know what was amazing to me? is Ten times as many people, when Mike Atkins would give a salvation call, I watched ten times as many people as anywhere else with every eye bowed and every, every head bowed and eye closed. And I always wondered about that. Mike was a great speaker. Mike was a great evangelist. But there was something about when you reach the point where your own, in a day where our own sense of pride and worth becomes such our God, to say, I don't care who knows. I can't do it on my own. There was a desperate man in a garden in a tomb who was cutting himself and who was screaming and who was out of his mind because demons were filling him and he didn't probably know why. And he was so desperate he falls at Jesus' feet. And there was a woman in such distress who'd spent all of her money and all of her time trying to be well and she falls at Jesus' feet And Jairus is over there tapping his foot going, but what about my daughter? I had you first. 
He's got to be thinking that. Remember, every minute counted, his daughter was on his deathbed. And just as Jesus begins, we don't know how long he took during this interchange with the woman, but he begins to go on, and people meet from his house. People meet Jairus coming from his house and say, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter's dead. What's the implication of that statement? Well, the message is clear. Jesus can't help anymore. The limit of his ability is sickness, yes, death, no. Right? Clearly. Don't bother. He's a teacher. Maybe that even that word in and of itself was, you know, the teacher. And yes, we've seen him do some healing work, but there's limit to what he can do. This is the thing I want you to take away from this last story. What does Jesus do? Let's look at this. If I'm Jesus, you know what I do? I turn to the messenger and I say, I can't too raise people from the dead. <laughs> they, had just, they had just dissed me, right? Asked, they even say that anymore? But anyway, they, they had done that. I so date myself. All right. So, uh, he, it says, overhearing, 36, uh, this chapter, verse 36 of chapter 5, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, who does Jesus speak to? The ruler of the synagogue, to Jairus. And he says to him, Don't fear, only believe. I think that's the key component in here, is that if Jairus says, Okay, it's over, don't come. You have got to invite Jesus into your life past your own limits to believe or not believe your own doubt. There are things in all of our lives that we may think, well, Jesus can't do that in me. Theoretically, he can do anything. Most of us are too, you know, like, we don't want to say, Jesus, there are things God can't do. But practically, de facto, we live our lives in a way that says, this isn't an area Jesus can really do anything about. He doesn't really know about, you know, business stuff. He just, you know... He doesn't know software. The religious stuff, yeah. He can can handle church politics. That's his field. But my field, right, he he doesn't know about my issues, my family issues. They're, They're sort of beyond him. We de facto live like that. How do we know that? Because when you're given over to your life being consumed with such worry and such fear and such doubt and such angst over all these things... This is my symptom. You know, I, I have struggled in my life. I, 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 don't, I won't say I've overcome it, but being afraid of dying. Let me just tell you where the fear of death, the root of the fear of dying is, that you don't think God's big enough to deal with it. That's just a flat-out truth. Now, there is a natural human fear that comes from, with the unknown, and I'm not saying, oh, well, we're all superheroes. But uh, there is an all-consuming fear that you sit at night and sweat, and you can't sleep, whether it's fear of dying or fear of flying or fear of uh, someone leaving you or fear of being alone or you are alone or whatever it is, fear, doubt, death, anger, all these things become symptomatic of, God, this is beyond your capacity to handle. Now, he is a compassionate God, and he's not sitting wagging his finger. What does he say to you and to me? I think it's just like to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Believe. Faith is the currency of this kingdom where the king reigns. And faith is hard won sometimes because we can't see it, we can't know it, and it means overcoming our pride and it means overcoming a lot of stuff. But can I just say this? There is nothing that Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, cannot handle if you will give it to him. And it may not be easy 
but he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. So Jesus turns to Jairus, saying those words, marches in, and all that are laughing at him and doubting that he can do this, they're thrown out of the room, right? Faith walks in and doubt says, out. Last words he says, and I'm going to close with this. Sometimes I think when we think of miracles, we want to see the show. We want the, you know, the magic words, and we want all the spectacle. And you see some people that do healing, and they, it's very dramatic, and they flash their stuff. And he says, probably what this girl heard almost every morning of her life. This is essentially how it translates. Talitha kumi is uh, Aramaic, not Greek. And it's the common language, and it's pretty much what, what I read was it's pretty much what children say to their parents, honey, it's time to get up. That's essentially, if you want a good Aramaic translation, we, it said little girl arise is how we put it, but it said it's a, it, w- it would be a common phrase, honey, time to get up. Because what did he say before? She's not dead, she's only sleeping. Because to Jesus, death and sleeping are like the same thing. He's only sleeping. Honey, it's time to get up. No magic words, no big show. Come on, get up. The king's here, and so so is the kingdom. And in the kingdom, life reigns, not death. And if your home is a place where the kingdom reigns, then the joy and the peace and the love, the fruit of the Holy Spirit can reign there because the king is there if you've invited him in. Jairus fell at Jesus' feet, begging him to come. The demoniac fell at Jesus' feet, begging him to go. The lady falls at Jesus' feet, thanking him for being in her life. The connection that Mark makes with all these stories is this. Where the king is and we acknowledge him, we fall at his feet and we ask him for something. Do you ask him to go away or do you ask him to come or do you thank him that he has come? Let's pray. Ask the praise band to come forward as we're going to just take a minute to pray and then close in worship. Lord Jesus, I, I pray right now that you would help us to see your word for what it is. Lord, a record of your coming and what you were like, and in that, what God's like. Because you said, if, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. And Lord, in this, we see you making people who are bound free bound in spirit, bound in mind, bound in body. Lord, with a corrupt world coming upon us, but where the kingdom reigns in us, we see the evidence of it. Lord, we'd love to see you reigning completely in our lives, and so we want to invite you to do that. And I just want to invite each one of us to just make that invitation whether it's if you're willing to invite Jesus into your life for the first time, great. If you've already done that, but you know there are areas that, man, I, I don't know that God can do that. I'm just going to ask you right now to take a brief time in prayer and ask the king to come in and show his kingdom.